she can't even believe this. Alright, it is, it's recording now, not a big deal, um, like I said, I can hack the beginnings and the ends off, I don't know if you two have listened to any of the ones that I've done, it's, if not, it's totally fine, but the way I typically do it is I'll lead with like a hello listener, my name is James McHugh, you're listening to the Future Foundations podcast, with me today are Bill and Jackie Kasulis, um, am I saying that right? Kusulis. Kusulis. Okay, perfect. And then I've got Bill Kusulis, PhD, is an investigative researcher with a background in psychology, English, and a passion for cryptozoology. Jackie's expertise in data analytics lent itself to the larger joint project they undertook in and around Point Pleasant, West Virginia. If you two are okay with that, I'll leave it as is. Can we can we scratch the word cryptozoology? Absolutely. <laughs> let's let's do that. Okay. And change it to the unexplained. Perfect. And then I left your work with the postmaster's office out because I feel like it's not relevant to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But if you'd like me to put it in there, I don't mean to withhold accolades. No, the only reason it's ever been in there is to give me credibility so that people know that I'm... Not just the crazy yeah, chick. That I, right. Yeah, that I'm the data analytics you yeah. helped with actually came from a professional point of view. Yeah. I'm yeah, totally... Yeah. I'm tracking. Yeah. But right. no, it doesn't need to be in there. Perfect. And then I've got just some, like, yeah, not a ton, see, but enough that we should be able to talk for a good 20, 30 minutes. Okay. Sure. And then I didn't cover every single little thing that you came up with in your main themes, but the three that I really liked were gratitude, memorial, and community. So those are the three that I'm probably going to ask you to harp on. Sure. But please bring up other ones if you want to at all, okay? Okay. I, I tried to leave it vague on what I say, mm -hmm. so there's more for you two to say. Sure. Do okay. need a copy of the book? Because there's, there's one right in there. Yeah. Oh, I should have brought mine. Do you need it? I don't know. Okay. Um, we got the, the couple things that I took notes on that I specifically... Yeah, my... Uh, damn. I, mine's all highlighted at home. I should have mm. brought it. But it's okay. This thing's unscrewed and coming out. I noticed that the other day. Oh, well. You must have done it. It was the girls. If it's not stripped, I can come over and fix it for you folks sometime. <laughs> I think it just needs to be screwed in again, but I mean, things things have been happening around here. Yeah, we've got some weird stuff going on in this house. Well, poltergeist activity? It seems like weird it, yeah. Stuff, yeah. It yeah. does. Yeah. It's for a new construction, you think you're on like an ancient burial ground? Uh, we, haven't had, we, we haven't had a chance to look into it yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, so... We were talking to, he was texting one of our psychic friends. Mm -hmm. And as he's going back and forth with her, I literally saw in my mind's eye a white farmhouse. And I said, it was a white farmhouse that was here. Yeah. And she said it was a farmhouse. And so I'm like, okay, so now I need to go to the Sycamore mm -hmm. Museum and see who li actually lived here. Who would have homesteaded mm -hmm. right here. Yeah, and find out what happened. And there's like been issues with our right sides of our body. Like I've got this bruise that I don't even know Ooh. how I got it. And his whole right side was his medical condition. Mm -hmm. And my right foot hurts really bad. I'm like back over here. I don't know what, but I'm going to go to the doctor. And, and Maggie, our black lab, was limping on her right leg too. And so it kind of seems like there may be something that happened yeah. that's being replayed. In right. A way. It feels that way. We yeah. hear disembodied barking. Yeah. And the dogs don't hear so, it. Right. So I'm thinking it was a farming accident or something that involved a dog and 
the crushing of the right side of the body or something. So I'm going to find out. Yeah. Let's hope it yeah. stops at that, though, because this really sucks. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't want know, any more of this. There's not really any harm harm to us except for this weird <laughs> Well, I mean, to you, but yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, you're That's bleeding true. That's true. Maybe. I, That's true. I was only in the hospital yeah. five days. No, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But did you die? <laughs> Not yet. See? Yeah. It wasn't yet. like you had a crushed leg or anything. Just a crushed spine. <laughs> okay. Um, I may move stuff like that around so that it fits later on. I'll let you know of like edits that I make when I send you guys sure. a copy. Just okay. do whatever you want to do. Okay. okay. Hello, listener. Thanks for tuning into the Future Foundations podcast. My name is James Patrick McHugh, and with me today are Bill and Jackie Kousoulis. Bill Kousoulis, PhD, is an investigative researcher with a background in psychology, English, and a passion for the unexplained. Jackie's expertise in data analytics lent itself to the large joint project they undertook in and around Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Their experiences and the results that they drew have been compiled into a book called Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley. I read it last month and I found it very fascinating, so I wanted to sit down with the two of them. So thanks for being with me, Bill and Jackie. How are you two doing today? Very good. How good, are James. you? James. How are you? Awesome. I cannot complain. Um, before I get into all my questions, there's one quote that I kind of wanted to put out there to kind of set the mood because it's one that shows up early in your book and it really stuck with me the whole way through. It was the imagery that I had as I was trying to understand these people's points of view. The bridge was gone and Christmas gifts were floating down the river. Yeah. Yeah. We heard that from several people and um, it literally brought tears to my eyes every time. Every time I heard it, it was like, it made your heart sink and um some, a lot of them were little kids when they were talking about it and like the very first interview was mark griffith and he said the same thing and we literally are going to put a picture of him one he's saying that about how that there was a semi floating on the river and there were christmas presents and he's like come on people this is supposed to be christmas this is supposed to be a time of celebration with your family and friends how did this happen so let's let's give a little bit of background for the listeners on what we're even talking about because so far we've kind of danced around it with the title and everything. In the late 1950s, I want to say, the Silver Bridge that combined or connected Tennessee. Ohio. Ohio, thank you, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. um, with Point Pleasant in West Virginia had basically been undergoing increasing stress as vehicles were modernized. And maintenance was, I'll say, the best practices hadn't kind of been input yet. Is that a fair way to look at it? Yes. Okay. And so it's my understanding that basically a very small fracture that would have been hard to see in the standard inspections of the time was let to grow to the point where the pin holding the whole bridge together cracked and it all fell. So basically, James, it was a manufacturing flaw. The okay. Silver Bridge was built in 1928, and this minuscule little flaw was in one of the eye bars. And over time, it was never noticed because it was in a place that was hidden from, from sight. You couldn't see it. 
So over the next 40 some odd years, 30, I think 39 years, the bridge was up. It didn't really, it didn't really develop into anything more than it was. At least that's the way the Army Corps of Engineers, when they reassembled it, mm. stated that it was. But that under all the all all the stress that you talked about, all the strain of the heavier vehicles, the 18 wheelers, mm -hmm. the fact the bridge was jam packed and it was so cold outside, finally this thing gave way and the entire bridge collapsed. Yeah, and it. I mean, it's fair to say just right off the bat, it was a bridge full of people at the time, right? Right. And they were used to, in some ways, a lots of uh, stop and start on that bridge in the recent years before that disaster. So a lot of people didn't feel right away the urgency to get off because they thought this bridge is creaky, this bridge is cracky, people get impatient on it, etc. And they were all focused on their daily lives. That's kind of my impression. That's true, but the incident, the exact incident, um, time, people wouldn't have had an opportunity to get off. As Denny Bellamy explained it, it went, it, you know, it, it twisted this way and it twisted that way. And they were, you know, cars were flopped off into the water and then the bridge collapsed on top of all these cars that were in the water. So it happened within seconds, within seconds. Um, people that were there that were there quickly after they heard it said the flow of the river was so strong that there were semis way down the river already. So, um, and, I mean, in that quote, it was just gone. Yeah. yeah. That's what stood out to yeah. me. It's like, it's a I start. Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. You can, yeah. you can see where the bridge was and it's just not there. It's almost heart wrenching to think of. Yeah. Um, and I actually took a trip to West Virginia in 2020 during the pandemic when we were trying to spend time a little distance from people. I, I believe you two did a similar kind of sojourn down there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, West Virginia still has some huge bridges from that same time period. The New River Gorge Bridge, which I went and saw just a few days before I went to uh, Point Pleasant, is one of the largest bridges in the nation, right? And it's been around for over 100 years, whereas that bridge existed for what you said, 49 yeah. And I, I look at the way I was looking at New River Gorge without knowing this had happened. And I translate one to the other because they're similar feats, but on a different scale. And the same kind of problem could have occurred there. That's the closest I could think of at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess I just have to ask, like, what drew you to specifically the bridge disaster in Point Pleasant? Why did you two want to start talking about it? Because it's clearly a touchy subject. We're feeling some kind of way to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, really, I was introduced to the Mothman Prophecies movie in 2003. And I found it to be really interesting. It really captivated me in a way that no other movie really had to that point. When, At the very end of it, when it talked about this being based upon real things that had happened in the community of Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1966 and 67, it was news to me. I had no idea. I'd never heard of the Mothman before. None of that made any sense to me, but it sounded fascinating. So I started investigating it. And so over the course of the next 13, 14 years, I really literally collected as much as I could about you know, literature that was written about the Mothman. And then that led to the Silver Bridge and obviously the Silver Bridge. Well, obviously to me anyway, because I've been studying this for so long and Jackie as well, that 
the culminating aspect of the Mothman prophecies, 13 months worth of paranormal activity that took place in that area was the Silver Bridge collapse. Not that the two things are necessarily related, not that there was a cause and effect or anything. And I'm not ruling out the possibility that there might be, but mm -hmm. that's not what our research identified. What I'm getting at is that we went to Point Pleasant the very first time in 2016. And the whole idea was to go there because we were so just ensconced with the whole legend of Mothman. Mm -hmm. What we found was the human element. We met, the first person we met when we got there was a lady by the name of Carolyn Harris. And she operated the Mothman Diner. And she was also the co-founder of the Mothman Festival. And so we got to be really friendly with her. And over the course of the next week that we were there, we stopped at her diner every single day. And we came to learn that she had lost her two-year-old son in the bridge disaster, which is very heart-rendering. I mean, you really, you think about that and gosh, what a horrible loss. But we became friends with her. And we went back into our workaday world lives, and I was in graduate school. And so we were super busy. We didn't have a lot of time to get together after that and talk about things much. But on Christmas Eve, we were headed out to Jackie's mom's for Christmas Eve to celebrate the holiday. And I told Jackie, I said, you know what? I think we should get a hold of Carolyn because I want I want to write a story about her. I mean, I really think, you know, I like to believe that I could at least talk to her about what happened and get her perspective and blah, blah, blah. The next day she had a heart attack on Christmas Day and, and the next day she passed away. So we never got a chance to do that, but we'd become friends with Jeff Wamsley who runs the Mothman Museum. And I had a, I had a residency in, in uh, Arlington, Virginia, right next to Washington, D.C. in 17, so the very next year. And so I said, you think Jeff would go to dinner with us if we stopped in Point Pleasant? Well, Jeff's kind of a celebrity, you know? <laughs> and so she's like, well, you don't know unless you ask. So I sent him an email. And sure enough, he said, yeah, we'll get together with you. And then I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm like a fanboy, you know? And we all get together, and it was me and Jackie and her sister. We had dinner with Jeff, and we got to know him a little bit more. Turns out we're, like, into the same kind of music, and we just became good friends, the three of us. And uh, in our travels, going back to Point Pleasant in subsequent years, the concept just kept growing. I got closer to finishing my degree. And when it was done, we took the concept of post-traumatic growth, which is something I, I studied for my dissertation, and we just extrapolated that concept to the bridge disaster. And that's how we got started. Well, it, it's kind of a microcosm of your larger project then that the sort of tragedy of missing, I'll say, the deadline, uh, for lack of a better phrase, with, with Carolyn Harris led you to the conversation with Jeff that turned into this larger project. And I think, like I said, as a microcosm that's kind of thematic of your project itself. And so uh, let's talk about that now, getting into it. Um, how would you describe post-traumatic growth to someone who's never heard of trauma to begin with? Simply put, it's the good things that we experience as a result of going through our trying circumstances. For the book itself, it's about the bridge disaster. You know, when 46 people in a community the size of, you know, seven, eight, 9,000 people between Gallipolis, Ohio, and Point Pleasant, West Virginia, you lose that many people. You either knew somebody on the bridge or you knew somebody who knew somebody on the bridge. It affects everybody. So this horrible thing that happened there, you could take that or you could go through a divorce, you know, like I did in midlife. I went through a divorce in my 30s and 40s and it was 
It was a nightmare. The process was an absolute nightmare. To me, that was traumatic. Well, if it spanned two decades of your life, it exactly. probably took a longer than you had expected. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. It, I mean, but there are other things too. Earthquakes, you know, um, violent crimes, people who are victim, victims of violent crimes. It's the strength that you gain as a result of not just getting past stuff, but really going through it. Yeah. That's post-traumatic growth. I, uh, I wasn't expecting this book to be about this when I started it. Um, because when I got involved in this with you, I only knew about the Mothman side of all this stuff. And that's partly because, you know, as a kid, I was in, into also the unexplained. And I played video games where the Mothman came up. And I didn't even know the bridge disaster had happened, like I said earlier, until I went to Point Pleasant and was learning about it and then found out it had occurred. And it's kind of cool because a lot of what your book talks about is how that mythos has changed over time. And you mentioned just a minute ago that um, the the preceding events kind of built up to the disaster with the bridge. And what I heard, so please correct me if I'm wrong, is that kind of in the collective psychological uh, atmosphere there was a building tension in that time where like as far down as Charleston, even people felt like something bad was coming. There was kind of a foreboding mm -hmm. uh, vibe in the population. Mm -hmm. And then after these sightings of the Birdman, which became the Mothman kind of came to a head and the disaster occurred. There was like almost a collective sigh in that. Now we know what the tragedy is. And now we can begin to rebuild. Is that a fair way to construe it? It's interesting because I, get, I don't know that I've ever necessarily heard it put that way. The first thing that came to mind when you started down that path was Jeff Wamsley, the owner of the Mothman Museum, who we were just talking about a minute ago. And he is in a documentary by a group called Small Town Monsters. And, and the documentary's name is the Mothman of Point Pleasant. And as the movie and the drama and the suspense is kind of playing out, as it starts from the, you know, the first sightings down through the next few sightings and the strange things that were going on in the communities and this kind of a thing, he talks about how everything was kind of sort of, it was like it was building towards some kind of a crescendo, but they didn't know what the crescendo was going to be. And John Keel, who was the researcher who wrote the Mothman Prophecies book that all this is based upon, he knew something was going to be going on. He was receiving all kinds of prophetic visions. People in the community were getting prophetic visions. They were having dreams. They were seeing these presents we just talked about a minute ago floating on the water in visions. They were seeing this stuff happening. So it was continuing to build up and build up and build up. And Keel even basically said, I knew something bad was going to happen. I thought a power plant was going to blow up. Mm -hmm. And he was getting all kinds of conflicting uh, messages as to what was going to happen. Some of them came true in other areas, and some of them never did, and this is one of them that just never did, and he really kind of blamed himself for not knowing ahead of time, if you can imagine that, what was gonna happen and what did happen. Mm -hmm. So you met these people sort of beginning around 2017 was when you began seriously thinking about this. And then in your book, you say that you took a, a COVID-defiant 2020 trip, <laughs> much like ours, uh, that Elaine that and I took, but what was that moment like for you when you were there, you're talking to people or maybe even just talking to each other after talking to people or beforehand and that moment clicked where you go, we have to come back. Can you describe what that moment was or what it felt like even, or was it just a gradual 
You mean from our first from our first trip? Right. When did you decide we have to come back and keep digging on this place instead of the subject? That's what I'm trying to. When ask. did we decide that we had to go for the next year? We yeah. decided when we went to when we went to Arlington, mm-hmm. we knew that we had to make a trip back down through Point Pleasant because the place feels magical for one thing. I mean, I don't know if it's the confluence of the rivers and, you know, the energy. I don't know. There's something there. You know when you're riding, because Point Pleasant is on kind of the left if you're coming into West Virginia from mm-hmm. Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you if you pass Point Pleasant, it curves to the right on the interstate there, and there's just huge valley. And it's even though you know Charleston's another like 50, 70 miles down, it almost feels like you're in the Charleston Valley already. Do you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can, I, I completely understand what you're talking yeah. about there. Wow. Yeah. And my sister went with us to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and I wanted her to, I wanted, to, I wanted to take everybody to Point Pleasant. Because I love it there. It's a very so, pleasant point. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I really, I really agree with you guys. Wow. So, if someone were to read your book, let's say, you think that they'll understand in general how everybody felt, or is this population that you're talking to, who has these direct memories, separate in any way from the general population of Point Pleasant and Gallup Police? Does that make sense? It does. So two of the people that we interviewed, that would be Andy Colvin Mm -hmm. and Harriet Plumbrook, were Charleston people. So they weren't Point Pleasant people. So when they were interviewed, they were coming from more of a paranormal-centric perspective when it came to the interviews. Yes, they still talked about the bridge disaster, but they were more focused on the paranormal things that happened in their lives. Ironically, even though they were 50 miles up the river, they claimed that this whole Mothman thing was not just a Point Pleasant thing. It was also an entire Kanawha Valley type thing. Which which makes sense because <clears throat> Clendenin, West Virginia, is originally where the Mothman, that was the first report, and that's just a little bit east of Charleston. So it's a suburb of Charleston. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry. Oh, so that, so that being said, um, the rest of the people that we interviewed, we, we set out to kind of select people. And the first one we wanted was Mark Griffith because we met him with Carolyn Harris. And he's been a, a good friend of ours now ever since 2016. We hear from him all the time. And so we asked him to be part of the study. And we didn't even know at that point it was going to be a book. At that point, it was going to be a psychological study. That was just what we were calling it. So we asked Mark if he would participate. He said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was more than happy to do it. He got Rick Handley, who is one of the gentlemen that's you know interviewed down the line in the interview sequence. But then we also set out, we, we hit up three different folks that are kind of central to the whole Mothman mythos, so to speak. That's Jeff Wamsley, who we've talked about, Andy Colvin, who we've talked about, and a guy who's not in the book by the name of Steve Ward. And Steve now actually has up in retirement, moved from Michigan to Point Pleasant so he can work for Jeff at the museum in retirement, which is a lot of fun for him. But we, we, we talked to the three of them just trying to get other people that they might know who want, might want to participate. And Steve didn't really know anybody, so we didn't go any further with him, although he's a friend of ours. And Andy, we, he, we got to know him a little bit over Zoom, and that's how we got Harriet involved also. So we kind of utilized the technique of kind of handpicking a few people, and then we had an ad placed in the newspaper. 
And in the ad in the newspaper, the people that came to us were totally at random. Mm -hmm. We had three people that came forward the week that we were there in the summer of 2021. And they were Linda Lane and they were Jimmy Wedge and Charlene Westwood. So the three of us came, the three of them came forward to us totally randomly. And with Jimmy in particular, we hit the jackpot because Jimmy Wedge lost both mom and dad in the bridge disaster, which I hate to make that sound like a good thing because that's not what I mean. But Jimmy had never granted interviews before. It, but he just saw this. The timing of it was right for him. He's 79 years old. And he said, I want to talk about this. I'd like to be part of your study. We only found out in hindsight who he was, a very prominent person, not just in Point Pleasant, but in West Virginia and also in in the government. And depending I mean, on who you ask, maybe even the Birdman. Yeah, yeah. Well, if yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what he told yeah. us. <laughs> and but, who's around to disagree? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so we had the three of them come forward and then Linda had gotten her friend Marva Bailey involved in the study too. So that, that kind of turned into what we call snowball sampling where we had people that were in the survey and then they asked their friends to join the survey, blah, blah, blah. And then before you knew it, then Jeff finally at the end of it, he said, yeah, I'll be in your book. <laughs> so he volunteered and we didn't ask him, but he volunteered and we were ecstatic that he wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, that's fantastic. So to answer the question, I think it does a fairly, I think it's a fairly good representation of the people of the area on their thoughts um, and what, what they perceived happening during that time and the feelings that they may have had about it and the grief that they may had about it. So I, you know, if they were in Point Pleasant or Gallup Police, Ohio, when that bridge went down, somebody said it in one of their interviews that if you didn't know somebody you knew somebody that knew somebody so everybody was affected so i think that even though we just had 11 people that we talked to there was a lot of similarities in their stories even though they were all so different so i think that the community at the communities at large probably would have similar things to say also about about it you know about the yeah. you know the the grief and the community coming together and you know all of that different stuff that was said mm -hmm. um it's really interesting to me the types of experiences that the interviews you got did describe because some of them describe you know almost a banal kind of like you had to pick up and go on with life i think it was sad because you couldn't help and then they just had to carry that even though like you said they might just be someone who knew someone who lost somebody and then there are the people who uh, like you were saying you know they were affected by the experience before the event necessarily even occurred and then uh, they had experiences afterwards that depending on who you ask may or may not have been tied to it um, I don't want to put too much pressure on you guys to wax uh, political about the government but I, I know in your book you talk about people who report government intervention after the fact about um, essentially the messaging that would come out of that town do you think that that impact is I guess larger to the mythos today or larger to the community today, the impact of government intervention. There was kind of a hush 
up afterwards. And I'm only saying this um, in uh, on a general level mm -hmm. because a lot of that pressure came from the community to just move forward with life. Mm -hmm. And then people reported outside pressure yes. from the government to just move on with life. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question is, mm -hmm. would that pressure from external um, entities have been more impactful on generating a mythos or quieting that mythos? I think it would I think it would generate the mythos personally. I mean I would think that whenever there's an effort to kind of put the, the screws to people and get them to shut up, there's something that they shouldn't be talking about. That's the perspective at least at least that you know if the government was quieting things down, I think that's always going to spark some type of additional thoughts of well, why do they want us to quiet down? There must really be something to this. Right. Those are my initial thoughts. Well, maybe. Because if you look at it in a different perspective, if you're looking at the people that they're in the Bible Belt and they're good Christian people for the most part, like Susan says in hers, that almost everyone in that area are Christians. Mm -hmm. There's a few Jewish families here, sprinkled here and there, you know, but it's typically um, Christian people that want to basically obey and do what's right. And they, I think that also there was such a huge amount of grief at Christmas time. There's funeral after funeral after funeral. And I don't think that they really wanted much more than to be left alone and get on with life, get it behind them and move on. That's the way I think. That's the way I feel. So what I'm wondering is, uh, is the question then, is it more geared towards the bridge or towards the, the Mothman mythos? Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I think I tend to blur the lines on this topic more than you folks did in your research because they do seem very inextricable to me. They seem like it seems like, as you put in there, you can't really talk about one without talking about the other, mm -hmm. unless it's in this weird kind of commercialized sense of the Mothman. Mm. Does that make sense? I think mm -hmm. so. Like people, people love the Mothman as a character. I have a little vinyl figurine of Mothman. You know, I went to Point Pleasant wanting to take a photo at the statue. And then maybe wanting to see the domes. And mm -hmm. we did both those things. But what I came there to do isn't at all what I got out of the place. And that's, I think, what got me started on this whole, you know, mm -hmm. wanting to talk mm -hmm. to you folks about this. There was a certain amount of attention that clearly our military complex didn't want there. Partly because they had, you know, um, a munitions repository mm -hmm. with inlets directly to that river a mile or two upstream of where this happened. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that that has nothing to do with the bridge collapsing. But I can definitely understand why the bridge collapse would concern people working in that space about undue attention. Does that make sense? It, it does, mm -hmm. it does. And as I'm kind of thinking through this and as you're talking, this is interesting. Um, 
in the works that we've studied, you know, some of the stuff with John Keel's work, but really a lot of with Andy Colvin's work, he talks a lot about the cover-up. And there was all kinds of talk about the military coming in basically and shutting down the TNT area after the sightings took place. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect of hush, hush, what's going on? Is there a flying saucer there? I mean, that's one of the things that Andy has talked about. Did they, did they have a flying saucer there? And he's gone a little further down the road of, were we manufacturing these? Were these ours? Did we put them there? I think he even talked about the possibility of nuclear energy engineering. That as well. And yeah. he, actually, he actually carries that train of thought down very logically and connects Point Pleasant with, with um, Area 51, I want to say. Okay. I think he had said that some of the radioactive materials that were taken from there made their way to Area 51, if I remember that correctly. And then when you tap into the whole, is the Mothman an entity of its own, can, for lack of a word, conspiracy, I, I understand how that would get people edgy trying to spin off like what's being taken from here that might instigate this uh again entity mm -hmm. entering the area what benefit would there be to the government putting the kibosh on talking about that after the disaster happens and what keeps like i don't i don't have a better word for this other than haunting me as an idea is that yeah, they did want to shut down whatever they were doing, but that the attempt to shut down talking about the Mothman was the misdirect. Because if everyone's going, why don't you want us to talk about Mothman? Nobody's asking, why don't you want us to talk about the TNT area? Mm -hmm. And that's just, I guess, the, the impression I got. And it's not relevant to the book that much, but I love that we got on this, this trade. But it's a really interesting theory. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And we talk about misdirects all the time and conspiracy theory, definitely. It's all about why, why are they doing this over here? Why is all this attention going on? One of the things we talk about is the, the great political snafu that the country is in right now, where the extreme right and the extreme left are just at odds with each other, at each other all the time. Nobody's trying to calm things down. They're always just trying to fan the flames. But who are the they that are actually doing that? And why are they doing that? And what's really going on that they're trying to keep us misdirected by? So if you take that and go back 55 years into history and look at Point Pleasant as a microcosm of what might have been going on there, we had men in black showing up. We had people shutting people down. Denny Bellamy talks about it in his interview. Yeah, he discusses, he discusses uh, Linda Scarberry and how Linda Scarberry was just crushed and all the witnesses were just crushed. And they just, I mean, their marriage broke up. They were a very young couple, but their marriage broke up. Roger never came back to Point Pleasant after he left. So was it because this, you know, this mythical entity was there and was doing all these different things? Did people really get to them and shut them up? I mean, who knows? Right. Well, and there's also the fact that there were UFOs. A lot of people don't know that UFOs were also going on the same time the Mothman sightings were occurring. So you have right, the men they in talk black. talk about the ones at car level that sped along with them for a mile and mm -hmm. zipped off. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. And other, I mean, John Keel, literally, you tell the story about the descend. With the oh, Morse so in, in the Mothman prophecies, and like Jackie was saying, I'm glad that she, she caught that, is that... During 66 and 67, the UFO activity was just as prominent, if not more so, in Point Pleasant than the Mothman sightings were. 
But because Mothman and the, is all about Mothman, that's what people tend to focus on today. But there were so many UFO sightings. What she was referring to is a chapter in the Mothman prophecies called Purple Lights and April Foolishness. And in April, John Keel and Mary Heyer, who was the local reporter for the Athens, Ohio Messenger that John was doing all of his field research with and going and interviewing people because, I mean, she was able to really tee up interviews for him because she was local and people trusted her, so thereby they trusted John as well. They were out in the uh, Camp Connolly woods out in the TNT area and they were taking a look at the skies and they were looking for the lights in the skies. Carolyn Harris told us about the beautiful lights in the mm-hmm. skies that were going on. You couldn't describe them, they were so beautiful. Well, they were out there in the forest and they were, it was like two o'clock in the morning and they were looking up and looking up and sure enough, they spot a couple of things that couldn't only be craft. They just, they didn't look like anything that, right. they weren't a star, they weren't At the a very least, they weren't naturally occurring. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so as he's mm-hmm. looking and she's looking, he grabs this big industrial, like military grade flashlight and starts flashing out what looked like code. And Mary asked him, what are you, what are you doing? And he said, well, they looked up again and it was coming down this light was coming down like it was going through the falling leaf type movement and he was spelling out the word descend. So he was it was basically interacting with him or taking cues from him and as he was flashing the lights and asking it to come down, it came down. Almost to say like, I know what you're asking. I hear you. Yeah, I, know what you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. And I mean, I've been in that TNT dome area. I was just showing you a photo. It's so overgrown today. I can't imagine walking around there at night without getting eaten by a snapping turtle. We've, oh, yeah. we've done it. <laughs> we, I, I, don't, I don't recall seeing turtles when we were there. But when we went down there in broad daylight, we were surprised how few of the domes were accessible because of the water levels. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And it didn't occur to me, looking at the layout as we were walking in, how those channels worked with that inlet that I was talking about. But then once I knew that, I go, oh. So, you know, it's almost like a reverse letter F with extra teeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the other side of the stalk of that letter F, and you see one of those domes, and the moon is shining water, and you can see that dome in the moonlight, I can understand somebody standing across the way, seeing dome with the saucer, in the water. Oh, yeah. And then as the moon moves, or even as they move, that visual would change. So I'm trying to provide a rational you know, point of view on it as mm-hmm. the most possible way to just be like, oh, that's what it could be. But at the same time, because it's there's this mythos that's been built up, not knowing is almost good for the health of the town now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that's the way Jeff basically sells the concept of Mothman because whenever you ask him about what he thinks it is, he's really, I don't want to use the word coy because that implies some type of premeditation. And Jeff, Jeff's, yeah. Jeff's a great guy. He's an awesome guy, tremendous businessman, done a great job of bringing Point Pleasant back. He's very impartial. He never leans one way or leans the other way. He's, but that keeps it ambiguous, which allows all that gray area for people to inter- interpret their own thoughts. There, there is something though out in the TNT area 
because there's tons of investigators that keep going back there mm -hmm. and they keep researching even deeper and deeper, performing all kinds of different tests. There's, um, we were out there one time with a friend of ours. She went with us and she happens to be a MUFON investigator, mutual UFO network mm -hmm. investigator. And, um, he was on the phone talking to someone and we're taking videos of these huge birds that are flying around out there. And when I got done at the end of the day, I would take the videos from the camera and download them into a file onto my laptop so I could keep it all which year and where mm -hmm. it was and all this. And I was watching it as it was downloading and there was literally a plasma ball in the sky that met another small light and then gone. And then we had this huge spectrum that looked like the sun coming through the clouds down, only it was coming up from the ground behind the trees. No, daylight. Okay. Total daylight. So we have all of that on video, but we didn't know that was going on. I didn't see it happening because I'm watching the birds and everything else. And we didn't even put it together with the pictures that we were snapping of the spectrum because it was so odd because it was coming the wrong direction it wasn't the sun coming out of the clouds it was a light coming from the ground off in the distance so and people see shadow people i mean there's still a lot of stuff that happens out there so there's something very different out there mm -hmm. um i want to tap more into the post-traumatic growth stuff because that's the whole point of your book and i know i've already taken 40 Plus well, it's and fine. we go the other direction with the whole Mothman part too, real quickly. So yeah. it's not yeah. all you. you yeah. didn't, we digressed as well. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, I want to talk a little bit about how you guys conducted the research um, because I know you handled a lot of the, the data analytics side, but you pursuing a psychology degree at the same time probably had a lot to do with the structuring of the research itself. Yeah, so basically what we did is we came up with a research plan. Mm -hmm. And the research plan followed the same type of plan that you write a dissertation with. And so we came up with research questions, and those were basically what are the elements of post-traumatic growth experienced by people in the Point Pleasant or greater Ohio River Valley area who dealt with the Silver Bridge disaster. And then we basically used the rest of that same question, but then put the, the word Mothman and similar phenomena into the research, the second question. So to answer those questions, we came up with a series of guiding questions and they were open-ended, they were conversational in nature. And so they were just a matter of, you know, tell us what your life was like, you know, before the bridge disaster happened. And then subsequent questions that were kind of along those lines. And then the second series of those questions was what was going on in your life? Where were you at when the bridge collapsed? And then what was your life like afterwards? And then we took that same series of questions and we just extrapolated that again over into the Mothman and other phenomena. And we, we asked them probably, I think about six different questions in each one of those subcategories. So we asked them about 18 to 20 questions each on each segment of things. Right. So for the folks that wanted to answer both things, they had a 36 to 40 questions to, to answer but they, we weren't looking for trite answers. We wanted their legitimate responses. We wanted it to be open-ended. It was just, we were just talking. Yeah. And so that's how we set that piece of it up. Once we got the interviews conducted, we transcribed the interviews. And then from that point forward, from that point forward, we took them and uploaded them into a software called Atlas TI. 
And Atlas TI is a, it's a qualitative software because everything that we did was on the human end of things, not necessarily quantitative by statistics. So we use grounded theory methodology, which is basically co-constructing reality amongst people who are discussing it. So as we talk to them about this, we put all these things into the software, and then the job was to painstakingly analyze every one of the statements that everybody made, which was a pretty tall order for 11 people. And we came up with a total of, what was it, 1,500 initial meaning units? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was huge, a big, big number. But then we were able to kind of filter those into, into categories, which is called like the second step of the coding process. So it goes from the initial codes down to like around 100 of what you call focus codes or categories. And from that point forward, we, we sifted them even further down into what ended up ultimately becoming the dimensions of post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. um, I apologize if anything in these next couple questions causes you to repeat something. Don't be afraid to say the exact same thing you said. I repeat myself anyway on accident, so don't worry about it. <laughs> um, what is bracketing and how does it fit into what you just described? So bracketing is something that's really important for a researcher to do to conduct legitimate psychological or scientific research. It's taking your own experience, like we've talked about, obviously we're passionate not just about the bridge disaster, but also about the Mothman and other paranormal things. We've got to take that stuff and we've got to set it aside because this interview is not about Jackie and me. This interview is about you. This interview is about your experience, not our experience, not our thoughts. We had to be really careful to kind of bracket our own experience or kind of pull it out of the equation to allow the people that we were interviewing to give their perspective mm -hmm. of how things were, if that makes sense. Yeah. Would you like to talk a little bit about empathic neutrality? It was one of the interviewing skills that you mentioned in the book as uh, really part of those top 10 most pertinent. It's, yeah, it's basically, it's listening with empathy, which means you basically care about the person you're talking to. You're trying to create uh, a safe space for them to be able to discuss their own experiences and to not be in judgmental in any, any way, shape, or form. And the neutrality is just to stay neutral, to not necessarily, you know, when Jackie tells me how horrible it was that the bridge went down and how it hurt her, to express concern, but not to go down in the bridge disaster with her, so to speak, to remain somewhat objective, or as objective as is possible to do, understanding that it's a very trying thing. Yeah, being emotionally connected, but not emotionally subjective, yeah. Ugh. I had a harder time with that. I cried during some of the interviews, so I, I had a harder time with that. I don't want to sound like, yeah, I, I cried a little bit reading the book. Yeah. This is heart-rending stuff, like you said. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about Jimmy when Jimmy kept looking, looking for mom, just looking up into the stands, looking for mom, and still coaching the team the whole time, knowing that the bridge was down. Because he knew the bridge was down before the game even started, yet he still went. He's 25 years old, really just a kid, honestly. And here he is, wait, yeah, waiting for his mom, and then finds out dad's gone too. Yeah, I mean, it was tough to hear that stuff, but he he shared that story with such grace. It was amazing, and he was so funny. He was so much fun to interview. But yeah, tough stuff. I feel bad that I don't have questions prepped about the other football disaster stuff that was uh, connected to it. That was the first time that I'd seen any of that when, when you talked about it. And so I have to do my own uh, further research before I really understand how it fits into the 
other pieces of the puzzle. But I know there was another similar disaster involving kind of a uh, a star football team in the area mm-hmm. and, a, and a plane mm-hmm. crash that yeah. people felt like they sort of knew was coming, even though it caught them by surprise. Is that forty five minutes down the road from Point Pleasant, and I mm-hmm. think five years after the bridge disaster happened is when that happened. Yeah, and I wasn't even really conscious of that either. I mean, I'd kind of heard when when people told us about it, when, when the third person that we interviewed told us about it. Mm-hmm. Then it started ringing true, and it made. I'd heard it before, mm-hmm. but I I didn't ever really associate it with the bridge disaster or even West Virginia for that matter. Right. Much less things like Cornstalk's curse, which I hadn't heard of till I went to Point Pleasant and mm-hmm. saw the memorial and everything. And you know, it's very cool that you guys were able to find like uh, the. I think it was you you two who found there's like a play mm-hmm. that that originated from. That where they were able to find that document that was sort of transcribed or or. Yeah. Um, canonized in the culture yes yes yeah even though the the markers and the monument talk about how at the end of it all it was more of a peaceful parting than the theater would have you uh belief i think that's a fair way to put it um so i want to talk about a few of the main things that you folks found from your research and i know there's far more uh core themes that you boiled this data down to within the community but the three that stuck out to me and i'd like you guys to start with if you can is is gratitude uh, memorial and community so so let's start with the first one could you tell me how uh your impression of gratitude in the community helped them recover do you want to take that um I don't even know what to say. I'm trying to think what people said. Um, well, like one one of the one of the things was is that was very unusual. Oh yeah, that was very unusual. Said by Marva Bailey is that she was grateful the bridge was rebuilt where it was rebuilt because where it was built previously it went right through Point Pleasant and. Um, if they would have put that built that bridge back in that same spot or near that same spot, downtown Point Pleasant couldn't handle the traffic of today. So there was that type of a gratitude. Um, and yeah, you can't you can't plan for that. No, no. You, there's no. no way they could have known by rebuilding literally two miles down the road. Yeah. Even though it reshaped the whole town. Well, and I'm great. I'm grateful because if you think about it, you you've been downtown Point Pleasant. Uh-huh. If they would have so put beautiful. if they would have put that bridge back, they would have had to tear down at oh, least oh. part of Low Hotel, which is a haunted hotel that brings people in. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or some of the other historical buildings. And tied with that, because the commercial centers of the town moved closer to that new bridge. Mm-hmm that part of the town is almost frozen in time then. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that was something I noticed when I went down there mm-hmm. is that those facades on those buildings are, yes, they're modernized in that they've been maintained, but it looks like a colorized black and white movie. It does. Down. It does. Yeah. And, and even though, you know, the Mothman Museum has a modern sign and it's got electric and neon lighting inside of it and such, you can still see how it's a again a commercialized version 
of this town that was stuck in time. Yes. It's mm -hmm. really, really cool. Denny talks about how if you put old time, time cars around the stores, you've yeah. got basically the 1960s again. Oh. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And another yeah. thing with gratitude that I was thinking of was, even though it wasn't expressed in this manner, one thing that came to mind for me was with Mark Griffith. When Mark was sharing with us that he was basically the man of the house because his dad was over in Vietnam. Well, when the bridge disaster happened and the bridge went down, news traveled really fast. Mark says that in his interview. And it got to Vietnam very quickly. So his dad knew, I mean, almost immediately that the bridge was down in Point Pleasant. And so he was terrified that he would have lost one of his kids or his wife in the bridge disaster. And so Mark shared with us that the phone lines were down. You couldn't get a hold of anybody. And then finally, dad was able to get through to him. And he said the relief you could hear in that man's voice was, I mean, he didn't use the word palpable, but that's what he meant. Mm -hmm. It was palpable. So gratitude that, wow, I can talk to my kids. They're still alive. Right. My wife he is still alive. He was over there in a war. Mm -hmm. And he felt like he couldn't catch his breath until that moment yeah. when he heard them on the phone. Yep. Mm -hmm. And you're right because he, even though he wasn't even there for it and he wasn't part of the cleanup crew, he felt part of what happened. Mm -hmm. And so here, I see what you're saying in that he got to experience that gratitude somewhat in the form of relief in that it's not him. Mm -hmm. But then also the community can feel gratitude towards him because he can relate to the pain when he didn't know. Because mm -hmm. they all didn't know right. at the same oh, yeah. time. Yeah. Yep. And they all didn't know right at the same time. Yeah. Nobody knew. Nobody could get through to anybody. Right, right, right. And cell phones weren't even a twinkle then. No. No, not then. Um, you were lucky if you had a ham radio in your big rig. You know? yeah. Unless you were Maddox. I think Maddox had one in his car back in the 60s TV <laughs> show. There's also Jimmy who expressed gratitude, which blew me away that he was grateful that he was older than you know that he was in his 25 years old and that he wasn't a young person that lost both of his parents if he would have been younger it would have been much harder he would think and to me it's like losing both your parents in one fell swoop is like i don't think i could handle that but he's grateful for having his age behind right. him it, it that floored me that's the kind of perspective i wonder how long it took to develop I think you he's know. still developing perspectives sure. because when we interviewed him, you could kind of see things occur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the type of thing where, yeah, wow. Imagine saying that I'm grateful that I was old enough to help the other people who didn't have it as bad as me. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Um, let's talk about that second one that I mentioned, Memorial. A similar kind of play here. How do you think um, that was embodied in the data that you found and how would you say the residents of Gallipolis and, and Point Pleasant communicated memorial to you? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, and Denny, again, I, I'm going back to his interview okay. a lot, but Denny talked about how we celebrate the bridge disaster now with memorial. Not celebrate, really commemorates really the, a better word yeah. than celebrate is. But with you know memorializing it, they have a, they have a there's a get together at the bridge every December fifteenth, uh, like a nighttime vigil, to basically commemorate the people that lost their lives, 
in the bridge disaster. That's one part of it. I know uh, Marva had talked about wishing that there were more of a memorial on the Ohio side because on the West Virginia side, it's huge. There are all kinds of different things. You've got the, the walk, the brick sidewalk where you have the names of the victims who lost their lives in the bridge disaster. But on the Ohio side, there's one placard and there's just not really a whole lot else to memorialize things over there. So she took maybe the flip side of the concept we were looking for, but we still, you know, categorize that as memorial. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and she also mentioned too they have the, they have one eye bar down at the rest area where the placard is, and it's not too far outside point or outside Gallup Police, but it is outside, and you can literally go to where the bridge was. It's right across from the best. What, what was that? Quality Inn, which is not a Quality Inn. <laughs> Mm. Um, it's across from the Quality Inn, and um, you can you can look across and you can see the Point Pleasant side. You can see where the bridge was just by the landscaping. But on Point Pleasant, they have the big brick thing that said this is where the site of the bridge was. They don't have that in Gallup Place. And she really wished that they would do something like that there, too. And I wish they would, too. Well, and Linda and Marva both were from Gallipolis. They weren't from Point Pleasant. And even though they're right there in that same region, just the Ohio River separates them. They're, they're different communities. They, they really are. Why do you think Gallipolis disappears from the mythos of the whole situation, even though these two communities are so intermingled? I think Mary Heyer had a lot to do with it. When she and Keel were there investigating, it really became a point pleasant centric phenomenon so everything that was studied there was considered to be point pleasant and keel's research primarily was dedicated there too he does talk a little bit about gallipolis and he talks about gallipolis ferry which is on the west virginia side but gallipolis is just not mentioned a whole lot in the book and i think as as the legend grew over the years, even when the, when the movie came out 35 years later after the bridge disaster happened, that at that point they focused entirely on Point Pleasant. They didn't talk about Charleston. They didn't talk about Gallipolis, Ohio at all. It was all focused right there. So what transpired between 67 and 2002, I don't know. It was 2003 that I saw the movie. So that's where my whole quest sure. for this thing began was in 20 years ago. So what I, what I can say since then is that Jeff and Carolyn Harris and Denny Bellamy did such a great job of really capitalizing upon the movie and then making Point Pleasant into what it is today by repopularizing the whole, you know, the whole mythos of Mothman as a Point Pleasant-centric phenomenon is why we have this today. Through the Mothman Festival. Yeah. They did it through the Mothman Festival because Jeff opened the museum. And that's another reason I think that it's focused so highly on Point Pleasant um, because of the museum being there and the TNT sightings of the Mothman. They, you know, they don't have Gallipolis sightings, although there were some sightings on that side. They weren't, they're not as well known, but there's an actual physical place to go to in Point Pleasant that. Mothman was spotted many times and there's still strange occurrences there. Like even, you know, I was talking about the 
plasma ball in the sky that just diminished when it hit that little ball of light. Well, Susan talks about some of her friends still have vehicle troubles. Their, their cars just shut off yeah. to this day. Will shut off as they're going down like Camp Connolly Road or Fairground okay. Road. Yeah, I've driven down Fairground. Yeah. I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Ha- we didn't have any experiences, but yeah. We, we, if, if my car shut off on Fairground Road at nighttime, I would die. I would literally <laughs> die. <laughs> I'd be like, no. You know, you know how the, the armature works was just on the other side of that service road? Because like you have the road that... I talked about your F inlet here, and then this road here to get to the domes, and then there's that skeletal structure left over. Mm-hmm. In my like, I've always visualized that as almost it's this rib cage of the area. Does that make sense? Yes. There's almost like a heartbeat to the area coming from. There. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but like, I almost feel like when that structure collapses. It will be its own tragedy, even though it's unrelated to the domes. It's unrelated to the bridge. I like when I saw it, it's mostly concrete and steel, mm-hmm. but something about it feels living. Well, I think we're talking about the North Power Plant. Yeah. I think that's what you're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. In the North Power Plant, there were multiple sightings that took place right there. And even again, Denny in his interview talked about how they should not have torn that down. Because that could have very easily been the Mothman Museum right there in the TNT area. Makes you wonder why they didn't want that. <laughs> well, did, did I, I don't know if you caught this in the story or not, but he talked about what happened. Was it right there at the fairgrounds? People graffitied some some things on the wall there, and there were very prominent citizens that were at the fairgrounds. And they're like, "You got to tear that building down." <laughs> so it came down. That's our family name up there. <laughs> he, he, he was so much fun to talk to. He sounded like he was in a riot. Uh, when people get to that point where they're not worried about, you know, what people are going to say after hearing them, they and they just get so honest. It's interesting to hear what people really think. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 We spent six or seven hours with him that day. Yeah, until eleven thirty at night. Yeah, it was it was awesome. It would have been a hoot and a half. Yeah. Um, do you think that I had this question a couple minutes ago and I lost it? Um. So we talked about kind of the commercialization of Mothman revitalizing the town. I got the impression from your book that early on, before the movie came out, and I know this is before you started doing research, but uh, townsfolk were more reticent to uh, accept the idea of it being an attraction. And I, I wonder if that's you know tied to what we talked about before with the hush-up kind of atmosphere to it, or what... You know, um, and the last of the three big bracketed items that I saw, I'm using that word wrong now, but was, was community. And we've, we've had this thread through the entire conversation so far. But what's up with that? Why do you think people had a negative sentiment about the very thing that's turned out to be new life for this town? Well, I think because, number one, it wasn't that yet. It, it wasn't that yet. Just so like hesitance to change? We're talking about like in the 80s and the 90s as things had gotten kind of quieted down about the whole Mothman thing that happened back in the 60s. That people didn't want to have their their town associated with that crazy thing. That's what we heard. They didn't, okay. they didn't want that crazy thing to be what their town was all they about. They couldn't say, I'm from Point Pleasant without people being like, oh, you're from that paranormal town or whatever yeah yeah and again like jackie talked about earlier this is the bible belt this is very conservative america 
this isn't like some big cosmopolitan mecca where people can do whatever they want to do and get away with it. This is a very conservative area. So I, I think that that coupled with the fact that the bridge went down and so many people were still affected by that emotionally and had such a sense of loss, they didn't want to be associated with the Mothman. They didn't, they didn't want their town to be associated with that. It took several years of festivals until they were able to convince the powers that be that this is a real deal. We're making a lot of money. You're not taxing. <laughs> we need to make this more of a legitimate business enterprise. And then it began to take off. Well, and then it kind of parallels in the same thing. Because um, that, that's kind of touching on trauma, right? The growth side of it is now we have this still there's a vigil for the event separate from the the commercialized festival do you think that newcomers to the town because people are moving there relative to where they were 40 years ago and 50 years ago do you think that new people to the town can join that collective um, psychological community without having experienced the trauma by participating in these more somber events or is it only beneficial to do one or the other? Is it better to do both? Just what's your take? My thought is, and just to kind of go back to Jeff Wamsley's interview, he talks about how visitors to town usually are very solemn when they approach the topic of the bridge. They want to know where the bridge was at. They're very respectful. They're very courteous about it. And I think if a person approaches the town in that fashion, they absolutely can become part of the collective consciousness that respects what happened, that, that still, at least if not directly, can kind of mourn in spirit with the people who did suffer the losses and just pay respect to what happened and the tradition of that. I think you absolutely can become part of the community that way. If that answers what you were It does, yeah. For. It's, it's something that but on my mind, you know, because I feel like I have to go back at some point. I don't want to be considered a return tourist if I decide to meet people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the type of thing that I, I sit and I think about it and I go, who would I want to be in relation to that whole atmosphere? And I wouldn't want to be someone like I was when I first went there. Because before we talked to anybody on our trip, I climbed the statue and got a photo on the back of the statue. And that's a really cool photo to have as my phone screen. But something about what my experience was there, I would not go back and take that photo if I like knew more about the town instead of being drawn there by the icon. Does that make sense? Yes. It, yeah. does, it does make sense. And so, like, do you think there's a... I, again, I don't want to ask you to project on in too general of terms, but do you think there's a risk that people will, in a way, desecrate the value of that town or the values of that community in their effort to participate in the the fun spirit of the mythos? No, I think okay. I think as long as people are respectful of the people and the town regarding the bridge collapse that they don't most for the for the the majority of the people don't have a problem with people coming in and having a fun time with the mothman touring the tnt 
visiting all the shops, buying the souvenirs, going through the museum. I don't think they have a problem with that. I think where the problem lies is when they come in there and they bring in all their dark energy and they try to... Um, Spooky it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like try to... Um, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of. Um, manifest Mothman uh. back in, you know, or call Mothman a demon, you know, and that kind of stuff. It's when they make it all this dark energy and connect it to the bridge is where the problem lies for the most part. Okay. It's like because the town has grown from the trauma, the people who come there hoping the town hasn't are the biggest threat to that growth. I think so. Or, or yeah. even you're even just are irreverent of what took place there. And yeah. they're just there for their own agenda. You know, and when we when we traveled there, I, I never I don't think either one of us ever thought we'd be going back on an annual basis and even more than that sometimes. But I mean to answer your your point about being a tourist, maybe going back the second time as a tourist, I don't think I felt like a tourist certainly by the second time we were there, if not even part of the first, because it almost felt like we were we were part of the family from the very first time we sat down with Carolyn in her restaurant. It, it really felt like that. And they remember you. I mean, if you literally have conversations with them and you show genuine interest in them and what they do, they remember you. Jeremy, who works at the Bothman Museum, because of my my job, you know, he would always ask me shipping questions and he'd always be after me to please get Jeff to understand I need a room where I can ship things. So when we go have lunch with Jeff, I'd be telling Jeff that, you know, oh, wow. you really need to have the space and, you know, you can do shipping labels this way. He's like, so you're talking to Jeremy again? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so, I mean, and, and Brittany um, Sayer, she's become very, she, and she's a young lady and she wouldn't have anything to do with people our age for the most part. But we meet at Village Pizza with her and these other people that love Point Pleasant. You know, Steve Ward moved there for God's sake, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you folks are the second of my interviews, even though you're just the seventh interview I've done for someone related to West Virginia. Um, I think it was my fourth one. I actually interviewed a, a, a current, a new delegate for their, their house of delegates. And there's a different kind of hospitality in the Bible Belt that I wasn't raised seeing in people. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a, a whole other thing. I don't think that's limited to the community we're talking about here. And it's probably not even limit, limited just to West Virginia. But with all the things that are happening there and have happened there, wow. That's a resilient bunch of people mm -hmm. who really have like an upward facing future no matter where they're starting from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and making a conversation and getting to know people is of the utmost importance to them. I mean, we every time we go there, we feel like we're a priority to the people we're talking to. It's crazy. It's it's just amazing. I mean, I I joked with one of the people we talked to. Um, was it probably Denny again? I think it was Denny. And and I and he said to us, he says, "What is it about West Virginians? What's different about us?" He says, "We try to do a good job. Are we really are we nice people?" And we're like off the charts nights. Nice. So you got to understand, we live 60 miles outside of Chicago. Even where we're at, 
you kind of race home from work and you hope not to make eye contact with your neighbor because you just, it's not anything against them. You just don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> and here, or maybe it is something against them, here in West Virginia, yeah, it, it, they, they welcome you in, come in, let's talk, let's sit down, let's chew the fat. I mean, and that's what we've experienced since day one there. Yeah. Let me ask you, um, do you think the Midwestern goodbye has an equivalent down there? Do you know what I'm talking about with that? Can you elaborate on that a little well, bit? Well, when people in the Midwest tend to get ready to leave, they'll do the, well, it's about that time, let me let you go type of thing. And so it's like, oh, do you want another beer? Are you sure? You, you know, and there's this kind of like entrapment hospitality is what I think of it as <laughs> around, around the Midwest, uh-huh. where they don't quite want you to go if you're there. Because in a way, it's like, well, who knows when we'll start this conversation again. Like you said, I want to get in my house when I get home. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there's a similar parallel there where they have a form of, other than just the concept of Southern hospitality, because that's, I think, too regional for what we're talking about. I, I think, don't know. I think it's Southern hospitality, because let me. there's two things that happened on our first trip within the first, well, I guess Carolyn was the last day, but Mark, the first day, um, we were at the Mothman Diner, and I was talking to Carolyn, and I guess Carolyn, Mark, me, and you were all talking together. And Mark said to Bill, let's go outside. I have a joke I want to tell you, and we can't let these ladies hear it. You know, around <laughs> oh, wow. most, I know, around most, and it wasn't even that bad of a joke, apparently. And then the Because la- <laughs> you didn't get to hear it. <laughs> so and I don't funny. even remember it. And, well, he told me it was, he's like, it really was nothing. Right. But, I mean, it was just that you don't, you don't say things like that in front of women, you know? Uh-huh. And then our last day, when we were talking to Carolyn and saying goodbye, because we went back there every day to see her, she gave me her business card. And she said, here. If you have any more questions or want to talk to me some more, call me. And she wrote her home telephone number on it, not the restaurant, home telephone number. And she goes, and here, I'll give you, I'll give you my cell in case you get me when I'm not at home. <laughs> and she put her cell number on it. And I still have the business card. And I mean, I'll never get rid right, of it. That's, that's kind of, that's really special to have. Yeah, yeah. That, she didn't know us. Yeah. She, and we, we had no idea then that that would be the last time we ever saw her. Yeah. The iconography of those 10 digits to you means everything then in regards to your impression of how that community operates. Yeah. Someone you literally never saw again right. said you can reach me at any time. Yeah. Within mm-hmm. just a question. Yeah. Even. And yeah. I'd be the first one to say, I ain't giving that freak my number. You know? Right. <laughs> I answer every phone call I don't recognize. It's not saved in my contacts with the same flat, hello. Yep. Until I know who it is, yeah. you know. It's, what do you want? <laughs> oh, I, hello, hello. Until I know what's going on, because I'm. Anyway. And if there's a pause for like two seconds, you know it's a robo dial. Mm-hmm. Click. <laughs> Good afternoon, Mr. James. I'm like, yeah, I'm not Mr. James. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um. During this conversation, has anything occurred to you that you hadn't thought of before? Which is like taken from our line of questions. It's exactly <laughs> verbatim taken from your line and of And nobody's questions. asked us this question before. I wanted to hear from you too. I'm sure I'm sure there I'm sure there was things, but I can't think of what they are because I'm trying to go back over I know we covered everything, a lot. Everything we talked about. 
frenetic here. Um, that's, mon- that's on me. I get so interested. So I, I guess the first thing I would say is that every interview that we do is different. They're, they're always different. And I would say that this interview got me thinking in terms of, I mean, obviously the study, obviously post-traumatic growth, looking at the way we analyze the data, the legend of Mothman, the collapse of the Silver Bridge, how that affected the community. And then it, it got us talking about the conspiratorial aspects of things too. This might be the first time that I'm conscious of, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't remember going that in depth into examining different aspects of the cover-up and whether the cover-up was, you know, by design to be able to quench the myth or as a misdirect or what have you. I don't know that anybody's asked us that before. So just getting me to think in those terms, these are things that I've studied before, but not really spoken about before. Sure. If that makes sense. So what I'm hearing is that like almost everyone you spoke to had their point of view. And you'd get their point of view and ask your questions in regards to the more spooky, right? Um, whereas in this conversation, we've discussed alternatives. Yeah, we've, okay. we've, we've talked That's about mm-hmm. d- different alternatives and really very non-mainstream Mothman stuff sure. as well, too, which is stuff that we travel on a weekly basis, usually during this time, with one of our interviewees. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. It's funky. I'll, I'll throw a little thing in here. Um, when you were talking about people bringing a darker energy, mm-hmm. something that occurred to me that hadn't occurred to me before. The game that I told you about, the video game series that I've been playing or that I've played for years that got me interested in Mothman to begin with. Mm-hmm. He's the icon of a cult. Oh. Really? And they've invaded all the way down to the Kanawa Cemetery, all the way up to Point Pleasant, and almost into that um, Flatwoods area. So they have almost a third of the state. And then when you get down to the Appalachians in this game, all the old mines, they're creeping around and I'm looking for more occultic type things. And so it was just... Yeah. It was very jarring to me to hear that that's why I identified it as a threat when I first talked about it to you Mm -hmm. is that the energy that's being broadcast to people about Mothman who know nothing about it is dark yeah it absolutely is and that's one of the things that we talk with Andy about on a weekly basis if not even more so than that because he has always seen Mothman as like an avatar or as a Garuda or as a Thunderbird. Yeah. Something that's positive in nature that helps A people. superhero when he a was super, a child. A superhero to him as he was a child. Yeah. Absolutely. What's the game? The digging. Fallout 76. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I thought. And when we were, we were at the Mothman Museum with Jeff in, yeah. in 18, 2018. We went out there on November 11th, so 11-11. We weren't really conscious of the mm-hmm. fact that it was 11-11, but it was a holiday and she could take off from work. And we drove all the way out and we sat down with Jeff and he was just doing a filming. What's his last name again? Wamsley. Wamsley. There's a different person with the last name Lane, isn't there? Linda. L- Linda Lane. Yeah. Linda Lane. The character leading the call. Jeff Lane. Oh, that's wow. interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So all this stuff... He thinks he's being talked to by the wise and benevolent Mothman. And then 
in his like last days, he identifies that it's actually some form of interloper. And it's a very, yeah, it's a very interesting parallel because the broad interpretation of what's happening there is that it's sinister because of the icon, where in reality, the icon is entirely separate from the sinister events. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Spooky. Like I said. So Jeff yeah. was, he was being interviewed for a Prometheus, like ancient aliens type uh-huh. thing, but it wasn't ancient aliens. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was a special that was going on. And uh, there was a lady out front being interviewed for the show that we've, saw, we've seen on the show since then. But we didn't know anything about Fallout at that point in time. But he had all these little masks. These I got masks. one from the Mothman Museum. Yeah, yeah he gave the us a cu- boy, yeah. he gave us a couple of those. <laughs> Funny. And then I, I bought I bought the uh, the Fallout game, and, and we must have got an early version of it. It was really bad. What are you playing on? What did I, you play it on? PlayStation Three, I think, or Four, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that that was a, unfortunately it was a video game that launched way too early. Because they, it was their first ever live multiplayer version in the Fallout series. It's mm-hmm. all been a single player offline game. And so they didn't know what they were doing relative to where they are now. I've stopped playing uh, for a year or two now. But it's the, I, I understand that the iterations on it, the updates, have made it a much more fun game to play. Um, I'm on I've heard that too. for video games. Yeah. yeah. If we could do cross-platform, I would tour you all over that, that fake state. <laughs> um, because you folks have written and published this book I'd like people to be able to get it if they'd like it where can they do that and how can they reach out to you if they'd like to speak to you in some way uh, Amazon the book's on Amazon and they can contact us through Facebook page Phenomenology Research Professionals or they can email us at 2022PRP at gmail.com. And we both have Facebook profiles also. They can yeah. contact us through those as well. Yeah. Any final words for listeners? I, I hope that they enjoyed the interview because I did. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, this has been great. It's been fun to talk about this from somebody from our community. All the rest of the folks we've talked to have been from different places, remote from you know, Northern Illinois here, but this has been great. Uh, yeah. And thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you for Everybody, having thank me. You for listening. This has been my first in-person interview for this series. So it's been a lot of fun. for This me. is, yeah. I think, my first in, in-person interview too. I think we've done them all over Zoom. Well, besides the small town monsters thing, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's fun. <laughs>